Welcome back to a new episode of uh, Localizing the Globe. And today's episode is dedicated to the topic of uh, uh, regulation of autonomous weapon systems and military AI. Um, this is another episode recorded uh, together with uh, Dr. David Bozold, who was our guest in the previous uh, episode. Um, and together with uh, David, uh, we try to understand uh, how regulation of military AI can be rethought and reconceptualized. As you can imagine, the topic of, uh, regula- of AI regulation is uh, multidimensional and very complex. So throughout our conversation, we touch upon many other interrelated issues, uh, such as um, um, business strategy of uh, NGOs like Human Rights Watch, um, the future of uh, military affairs, uh, role of uh, AI on the battlefield, uh, transparency of uh, military organizations, and other similar topics. Um, and this uh, conversation is inspired by my own paper that I wrote on this topic. And this paper, this paper is called uh, uh, Making World Politics Local, a risky account of why international actors draw boundaries between machines and humans in the killer robots controversy. And if you have any interest in uh, reading this paper or participating in discussion of uh, AI regulation, you can find this paper on uh, our website, uh, which is uh, localizingtheglobe.com. So overall, if you like such topics as uh, international relations, science and technology studies, and any other issues in between, I think you might be interested to listen to this discussion and to uh, recommend it to your friends. So please subscribe, share it with friends, and as always, enjoy. So hello, David. Um, Welcome back to Panoramas uh, with a new episode and today we are going to discuss my thesis that you supervised. Um, and I want to start with a quote from my thesis, uh, which says, uh, so this way, uh, power rem- always remains local. Uh, making things international is a figuration. And of course, it, I guess, refers to the name of the, of the podcast, the panoramas of the local globe. So how do you, why, how, how do you find this uh, description of power as always local in contrast to how people tend to think about international relations in the global terms? Well, I think it's something we can discuss, we will discuss. Yes. And maybe I can try to rephrase it and say that um, maybe we can start that most people would agree that the effects of power can be perceived or can be experienced locally. So I think what we may discuss or could discuss today is, of course, um, what actually makes that power dimension local or um, how do we, where does power reside? Is there something like a, um, maybe there is something like global power, I would still, I would still argue, but I mean, um, 
maybe you can also try to contextualize what you actually meant by that by that quote yes uh, I, I guess the the context is that uh, people tend to perceive when studying international relations they think about power as something global they think about it as something that kind of exists uh, everywhere and nowhere at the same time and there is sort of like level of ambiguity that everything international relations what we study I guess in the field is like international and global and what have you but like uh, my argument would be that it's the opposite I guess power like the idea that power remains local it's the way that you can equalize like people like Elon Musk Vladimir Putin I don't know Kanye West and my thesis I mentioned but like whoever you pick And like those people all certainly have a power in terms of like, you know, you can think of material. Uh, I, I mean, power in the sense that they can really impact how people live. They can impact how um, um, like world events. Um, and this way, I guess you can you can think of power as something that always remains on a local scale. So like whenever like there is a power, there is like a room you can access it. So there is not just not necessarily one person. But there is a certain group of people who kind of like maintain this power, hold this power. So in the sense, like, it's almost like the opposite of international relations, how you think about, like, so you shouldn't really think about power as, like, international, but more as a power that kind of, like, resides in certain group of people with certain, like, very local, I mean, quite literally, like, a local locus in philosophy would be, like, local um, dimension, so to speak. But like I, making like when people say something that is international, that's what they mean. Like they figure it international, but they, they there is nothing. There is no such thing as international, so to speak. There would be like a very a hardcore argument. Yes, <laughs> I'm sympathetic in the sense that, um, of course, we have had numerous debates about what power is, what power means for international relations, and of course, uh, for anyone who is familiar with the discussion or with the debate or discipline, and they will all know that most of it is so uh, based on the so-called, uh, on the concept of the so-called Westphalian state model. So, I mean, a lot of it, what you, I guess, would want to suggest is that um, power is a domain of states, states exercise power, and um, if states act together in the form of an alliance, say, And that's also something where you would you would say power is certainly not that much a local phenomenon. If at all, it can be perceived or it can be experienced locally. Um, now, of course, there's another trend in political economy where you maybe also try to disentangle that a little bit by making the borders more porous in a sense, mm -hmm. that you uh, look at flows um, rather than stable patterns like borders or boundaries um, I think that's another way to look at it, um, but seeing how, I mean, if, if one takes your example of an individual person, um, how that kind of power is sort of has a local residual element to it, and I mean, how this is then translated, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, to another locale, I think that's the interesting thing here. So, I mean, if we say, okay... Elon Musk, for instance, take your example, is at a, at a certain space or a certain position in the world and takes his smartphone um, and changes the world, which has local effects by, you know, tweeting something 
So a stock market price goes down by 20% of whatever he writes. Um, of course, there, that's an interesting phenomenon. The question is, is that, is that something that is really local? Is it only local or is it also local? I would, I would argue it's, it's sort of the latter category because, um, of course, it is, you experience it locally even if you are 10,000 miles away. Um, but I mean, what people say who would probably not argue or not agree with that argument about locality is that you still see the global effects because they are, in a way, the overall sum of local things. Mm -hmm. But maybe I'm also wrong and mm -hmm. um, we are yeah, continuing I, the discussion here. I just like comment on Elon Musk because I thought kind of quite a lot about this. But I think more like Twitter thing and just stock market, I don't think it's that important if you compare it to the idea and how Elon Musk is endowed with capacity to quite literally create the future of humanity. Mm -hmm. Like And this way you can equate him to Putin the same way Putin, like, you know, he thinks in his head about like Russian, Russian, like not, you can say empire, Ruski Mir, Russian world or something like this. And uh, the same about Elon Musk. I mean, in terms of it, just his own projection of the world that, you know, people should go to Mars and we should make everything our utmost effort to do this. So, and there are only limited amount of people who are endowed with this capacity to actually imagine the world that we live in. I mean, there's very few, so to speak. And this way, I think you should more look into what makes these people like why why do these people have this power so to speak what make who gives them this power right and it's an interesting question because of course i want to make an argument uh i guess and it's like the important part of it that this way you can study international relations from whatever perspective you choose so there is no differentiation between russia vladimir putin elon musk spacex uh i don't know tesla it's all the same thing in terms of if you look at like people who, not only people, I don't say that Elon Musk is just all about Elon Musk. Elon Musk has um, followers the same way as Vladimir Putin does. So he also has followers, also people who believe in this idea of, of, of his concept for Russia. And this way they kind of, they quite literally envision and create the world that we live in, so to speak. And this way power is always local, so to speak. It could not, but like, Making things international in the sense of, uh, well, uh, you present things, um, like Elon Musk presents like, his ideas as absolute truth. Like, like, you know, you couldn't really argue with the fact that uh, if something goes wrong with the Earth, it's better to have like a colony on Mars. So they survive and uh, they for sure survive and they explore the, the solar system, what have you. And it's uh, like another leap for humanity, so to speak, right? Um but it's the same about Putin. Putin's vision would be uh, that... Russia. I don't know where you take your obsession with Putin, <laughs> but... Um... But, uh, but this is definitely the most powerful people on our planet. And others would say Joe Biden. Others would say um, Tim Cook as um, the CEO of Apple. I mean, since you asked what makes those people so special, but, uh, or, or they're their possibility to wield power, that's of course something different. I mean, uh, Vladimir Putin is um, is an autocrat or dictator or is a, a person who is able to uh, wield political power even more than when it comes to uh, the country, I guess, even more.
then, for instance, an American president, I'm talking about now sort of the domestic level. I don't want to talk about the international level today. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they are different, um, or politicians are different from people like Elon Musk, who are business people in the first place. And um, I think if you take that example with living on Mars, that's one aspect. Another one where you said um, that Elon Musk is a person who has clear a clear vision and it's basically uh, following through on every argument he makes or um, n not him being challenged. I think he still has those awkward moments. I'm coming back to Twitter and, and mm -hmm. the stock market that, for instance, he tweets something like, um, should I sell my stocks or do you think the kind of value of the stock is is correct? I mean, I think that's also a rhetorical device to somehow be in touch with, with his followers, maybe. Um, um. But since we wanted to talk about um, killer robots and your thesis and the effects of something that is local, uh, maybe we can try to continue talking about yeah, the local aspects because I think w what we started off now is how does or what makes it possible that an individual wields power that an individual wields power that this has a local effect I, I would say that's not something that mm -hmm. most or any listener would disagree with the question is just how can we perceive of that analytically how where is where is maybe a new avenue of research or maybe where is a new perspective of mm -hmm. something that others overlooked. Um, as with most things, people will say, hey, Dimitri, hey, David, maybe use new words, but I mean, this is a phenomenon that has most likely been studied by some Greek philosopher some thousand years ago. I mean, 2000 or 2500 years ago. Uh, yeah, that's also a tendency of ideas to repeat themselves and it's not like... Ideas don't exist in a vacuum. They always build on previous uh, generations and previous thoughts. But I guess uh, in the thesis, as you said, about killer robots, and, and I guess I argue that the whole idea of a killer robot is presented by um, basically the campaign to stop killer robots, the human's rights, a human's rights uh, watch that's kind of behind the campaign, the main architect of the campaign. This whole idea that people tend to use uh, like the, the concept of international or like uh, rightful or truthful or like uh, lawful in order to present, in order to basically mask their ideas as, as those that are correct and um, kind of mark all other ideas as incorrect and use this in order to achieve their own goals. I mean... I guess even like on on a, on a local level, it will not be possible to differentiate between uh, when a person does something f to achieve something for its own like needs or campaign, for example, to, to stop killer robots does something to ban killer robots, or it also it also does something it it also has this campaign to expand its own influence on the in the world politics. So the Human Rights Watch through this campaign definitely wants to have another level to it so have a campaign that tries to ban preemptively the whole class of weapon systems which is a very ambitious goal but you could not really disconnect this goal from just the, the idea of human rights watch is all about some some people concrete people that have wielded certain power and they kind of wanted to use this power to like stay 
uh, in the media to, to, to probably also uh, yeah, just basically to expand them, their influence in the world by, by, by also trying to ban killer robots. And I guess my argument would be like with the killer robots example that it may lead to a very kind of wrong path, so to speak, because they try to present it as a, as a thing that is good. They try to speak for humanity because it's a global, it's a global campaign. It's a global civil society, so to speak. But behind this global civil society are concrete people with concrete aims and concrete goals. And those goals may not be exactly kind of like, may not really align with maybe uh, with the ideas that they're trying to promote, so to speak, if you know what I mean. So with the campaign to stop killer robots, I guess for, for my argument would be that this is a failure because it won't, even if they ban killer robots, as a, as a class of weapons, it will hardly stop the spread of like military AI, because no power, no military power will join this campaign. Um, because I mean, it's definitely not something. Um, uh, so, 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 so yes, I mean, I guess my my core argument would be uh, that when when once you just realize this, that the campaign to stop killer robots is also about like human rights watch. And it's about like concrete people making concrete decisions. You can also come to the conclusion that those decisions maybe are not right, or maybe we should have other decisions, or maybe we should have other perspective because like this campaign to stop killer robots, it tends to silence all other perspective on the issue, so to speak. Yeah, that's what um, I think. That's a that's a bold argument, but it's also a multifaceted argument, and it's one yeah. that we should disentangle. So I think yeah. on the one hand. Um, there is the question whether the sum or the entire institution, Human Rights Watch, is only a sum of you know the individuals that make it up, or whether there is something where we can disentangle or also um, see a discrepancy between the people who may have you know own narrow self-interest, such as hey, if our campaign to receive funds or donations for our killer robots campaign is successful um, I can still be a campaign manager for HRW um, next year so I mean that's maybe as narrow self-interest that is you know at the verge of becoming cynical so I would put it aside it may be the case but I think um, first of all I think the reason why Human Rights Watch starts such a campaign and does it on a global level is um, is certainly also because of their understanding of human rights as a universal concept. So, of course, there, I guess, if I were a person from Human Rights Watch, I would most probably argue, well, we need that campaign um, because it's a phenomenon that will mm. be having local effects. So there we are back with the local. Mm -hmm. But it's something that we should regulate on a global level because if it doesn't make a lot of sense to start stop killer robots in for Switzerland and for Norway and for I don't know Rwanda and uh, Uruguay in case they are eventually used in I don't know mm. Mongolia or wherever so I, I think um, as such that's an argument that mm -hmm. is okay I think from the from the kind of history of Human Rights Watch from the also the idea that they are an international organization that has an international or global mandate, I think that's fine. The question, therefore, I think is rather, does the campaign as such actually 
yield the results that it 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 tries to achieve. And there, I think you um, were spot on because you said that most likely the most important countries won't sign that. So I mean, what we're basically seeing, I would argue, is a replay of what I also had a look at some years ago when I studied the the campaigns that were often associated with with the term human security. So things like the campaign uh, to ban anti-personal mines, the campaign to ban cluster ammunitions, and also things like the International Criminal Court, setting up the International Criminal Court. It's, the concept is one of a sort of normative framework, mm -hmm. a global normative framework, um, one that will somehow create norms where then people will either conceive of it as a taboo to use the weapons in the first place or one where they are also then legally challenged if they use them. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there is still an argument for the taboo argument. So, I mean, if you ban a certain kind of weapon, it is most likely, or it, it most likely reduces the likelihood that mm -hmm. states will use it. But, I mean, that doesn't rule it out. And there is this moral outrage, which is then the only kind of reaction to it. But, I mean, there's certainly no way to legally enforce things. And if you look at uh, the record, I mean, the most important countries have um, not signed those treaties. So, of course, that's um, a debate that's, that is still taking place, I think, in the mm -hmm. academic discipline. Does it make a difference if Germany, Switzerland, Norway, uh, small places like Jordan, Thailand, uh, Canada actually sign up uh, for those treaties, but uh, places or countries like China, like India, like Russia, like mm -hmm. the US, walk away and say, sorry, this is um, too much of a restraint on yeah. our national sovereignty. And I think that's that's the debate that is still taking place. I'm also, and I know I've been talking for a long time now, um, it's, it's something where I'm also puzzled that, I mean... Human Rights Watch seems still to follow that 19, end of 1990s, early 2000 business model that you somehow try to come up with that idea that it really makes a lot of a difference to um, ban what they call killer robots, where I, as a layperson, would actually have problems defining what a killer robot is. Yeah. Because, I mean, is a drone <laughs> a killer robot or is... Yeah, I mean, what is a killer uh, robot? Then is the question. My response, and I guess here comes uh, the actor network theory. I guess we haven't mentioned that uh, I use, we can discuss a little bit later, is actor network theory is a, is a useful theory, maybe in the studies of international, or just like in, in uh, social studies in general. Um, but of course, uh, the criticism would be that uh, the whole idea to like to kind of like like their main argument is like in ten or fifteen years there will be something that's so different from weapon system that we use now that it will be completely autonomous and it's almost like something like you know the robot jumps out of the box and then it's like almost from a factory you can you activate it and there are so many like. Uh, advertise not advertisement campaign like like videos are made with like these drones hunting people and just making decisions on their own um, and the whole idea that it will be so such a, like watershed moment and they will be as as they as they put on the website there will be a moment which we should clearly uh, stop the spread of like technology that can make like its own decisions so to speak so something like uh, so, so it's it's almost 
it's too much on the side of uh, uh, on this idea that there will be an AI that just like makes its own decisions without any human input, um, and it will happen very soon. So their may, may, their main argument is like this. Of course, like if you look at changes that are happening, it ha- have been happening for a while in, in modern like military technologies. That won't be something like this. Of course, there will be technologies. There are many, many types of weapon systems that use like they're used in for different kind of purposes. But they will be more in the sense of infrastructure and integration of armed forces, um, uh, where you need AI on many kind of operational and military scale, so to speak. You need the military AI for, let's say, uh, to develop a target. You need a military AI, of course, to execute. Uh, the force implementation to kill actually people. Of course, there will be some technologies like this, but it's 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 so con- connects to military institutions, so to speak. It's not separate. So you shouldn't think about killer robot. It's something that exists um, separate from military institutions. Uh, it's something that is deeply integrated into military institutions. And AI, of course, AI is something like you think about AI in the modern in the in, now in twenty twenty two. AI is something that picks like an ex-Spotify song for you. So it's not like you think it's like very intelligent something, but nevertheless, it can really have a very, like if you accumulate those changes on the everyday life, that can have like 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 really big impact on the way we live, so to speak. Um, and of course, I mean, I'm not against the regulation. Uh, my argument would be that we should rethink regulation altogether. So they kind of like, they clump all these issues with the killer robots that you, you should have rightfully so with the modern military institutions into one issue of a killer robot. And even on their website, they say like, there are nine problems uh, of killer robots, but there is only one solution. Nine problems. It's like you have uh, many, many, many problems that they differentiate, but the one solution is to ban. And my argument would be that there are probably nine problems to killer robots and there are nine solutions, so to speak. They shouldn't really clump those things together and of course that our also our world is heavily militaristic in general so even if you ban something as called a killer robot we all understand you will have a heavily industrialized military powers investing billions of dollars in these technologies or any other technologies um and this what makes actually them super dangerous because what we get discussed off mic you can think about like modern military is a, is a paradox in a sense of you think about like we live in a very transparent world and like, you know, you, you almost feel like you know so much about the modern world and so much information is online. But if you try to understand like the physicality of modern warfare, I think I, I'm, I, I'm actually even blank in my imagination what is going on inside like military institutions. So how how does the soldier of the modern world fight so to speak like what, what's the protocol so how do you go do you go to the, like this command and control center you sit there you have a commands you also have a buddy next to you and you have another buddy so like what what exactly are you doing in this process and i guess this uh the, the, in the interest of the military powers i would say to divert your attention from what is going inside and for them it's actually a good debate because they can say well killer robots are not real and that's it they have actually very easy to refute this argument by saying that this is not what's going on actually and and then we have like the situation when you have a uh like you can say arms race going on and more and more industrial nations invest 
a lot of money in like modern military equipment. And it, it becomes really scary to a point that you simply as a citizen, even of a democratic society, you have no idea what's going on inside military institutions. And this is, should be very, this, this is a thing to worry about, so to speak, and not just kill robots. Yeah, that would be, um, I guess, like, yeah, uh, the, the thesis is very multi, multi-dimensional multi level, but this is like the main, I mean, idea that I can, I can kind of like share, so to speak. I guess we can, <clears throat> we can also yeah. try to unpack that and um, maybe start with the thing that should be the easiest. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, of course, it's very unlikely that if you have numerous problems that you only have one solution. I mean, if that you have one solution that most people will agree on it or that you have what seems to be a solution that is shared by that sounds like by, ideology by, yes. by, 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 <laughs> by a majority so you have three different solutions and one is the absolutely preferred one maybe that sounds better um, <clears throat> the second one is um, this, I think what one could label the aspect of control so I mean is there something like you know a red button so that uh, once you have I mean, of course, this this image is that you have killer robots that are out of control, that are somehow doing something on their own, and there is no way for any human, for any military professional, for any sort of supreme commander to change that. I think that's something where I'm also not that much into um, the aspects of advanced military technology, um, my own understanding of AI in that context is that it would include such a sort of a killer robot warfare, would involve so many autonomous systems, or let's say mm-hmm. it, it's sort of an, a robot army, if you will, that there would, of course, be the question of how is all that orchestrated? How, how do all those individual units robots, I mean, machines, however you call them, how do they act together as a network? Because, I mean, in order to have some concerted effect, you will somehow have to bring them together in a way, in, in, in a network sense or in a networked sense. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something that, that I'm sure military strategists talk about, that they discuss, that they do research on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think yet another aspect is uh, is one where I think the biggest weakness of that campaign lies, and that is, um, I haven't really looked into the campaign in great detail, so I'm not sure whether it's it's something that has been discussed in those in those circles. But I mean, it's it's of course that the entire campaign rests on the assumption that there is a clear distinction between machine and human, mm-hmm. and um, I mean if we have a look at the growing cyborg literature or this idea of that we also update Mm -hmm. soldiers for instance by giving them specific kind of gear so that they can run faster that they somehow get implanted a chip which is technically now possible that you can automatically GPS locate them Mm -hmm. I mean is it that already a human with such advanced technological equipment even things sort of in their physical body yes is is that already a killer robot is a you is it a human killer robot yes or is 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 it sort of a a cyborg warrior i mean these are i think questions that 
the campaign cannot really answer because the borders are fluid. I mean, it, it rests on a binary distinction between this machine and human. And I think that's, of course, a flawed argument if you look at the recent advances in, in uh, technology. You, you, we, we don't have um, some kind of smartwatch at the moment, but I mean, if you just see what smart, so-called smartwatches can do these days by checking basic blood pressure or otherwise... I mean, making sure that once your heartbeat for old people, I mean, shows some kind of irregularities that automatically a phone call is then, you know, posted to um, a doctor mm -hmm. or to the hospital. I mean, that's already something, of course, it's not a killer robot, yes. but I mean, that's already just an example where you see that there is an increasing interplay between technology, also things that is of mm. course programmed, so there we have the AI uh, component and the human. Yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's also taking into account advances even in social sciences, because I guess in, in modern social science, of course there is this idea that technology shapes you, but you also can shape technology. So it's, it's really like on the website of the killer robot, it says like actually let's draw a line, a clear definite line between technology and humans. In the sense of that humans should control technology and the technology should kind of like control humans or whatever, like make decisions without humans. But Dimitri, I guess we can agree, sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. that uh, I mean, that's sort of a wish that everyone has. The question yes. is just, is that a realistic assumption? I mean, every, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't see anyone who would openly say we want to have some kind of autonomous system or some kind of robot yes. that is not controlled in the end yes. by humans. I think so. I think that's, that, a, that's, sort, of a, that's sort of an argument that's, that's I mean, where, where you would say, but who would oppose that? Yeah. Who would oppose that argument? The question is just, I mean, is that realistic or is it not? But that would like, be my question. But sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, the question of scrutiny <coughs> in terms of when you take this idea and you start to analyze it, and analyzing it from different perspectives, you actually end up like that this is a very flawed argument. But when you go to kill the robots, they make the utmost effort actually to silence sometimes people with a different opinion, which is so much like, you know, of the modern left and uh, like a feature of the modern left and modern liberals that they try to silence everyone who disagrees by filtering opinions. And then they say we're still like for, 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 for you know, um, uh, free speech and stuff, um, which is... Uh, uh, and it's, it comes back to my argument about power is always local, that is detrimental to the debate itself to have like this a very strong position on the issue. But yes, I guess that the whole idea of differentiation between technology and humans is flawed. And uh, like once, I guess like the, I guess the best understanding would be like once technology emerges, it completely changes the social fabric. So every time we have a big technological change, it changes us and changes our values. It's like I, I try to think a lot about like the whole idea of privacy is a flawed uh, is like the flawed debate because people debate a lot about privacy now. You shouldn't really you know use your data without the permission and blah blah blah. But of course, it's also important to understand once you introduce the mobile phone to everyone, basically you change the whole concept of privacy because you are not private anymore in the in a sense, like way before the mobile phone, you couldn't be because uh, there is a device that tracks everything you do, whether you want it or not. It's a different type of a question, but the the, the privacy of 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 the past kind of lost already. So you need to think about privacy in a sense of yes, we're we're still way much more. I mean, 
traceable and way much more like you know our life is still like accessible to people somehow that it wasn't before and it's the same about killer robots and about like this heavy like you know ai military systems that of course it changes the outlook of warfare of course like now the war is more in the command and control centers than on the battlefield um and i guess like uh to give you an example of what does it mean to integrate uh, there, there is a in, in the u.s military in the pentagon there is a not debate but there is a tendency to this idea that now there are like five branches of, of i guess five four five five branches of the u.s military it's like navy uh u.s army what have you um, marines and stuff like this and now they kind of try to merge it into something like one so there is no differentiation between let's say navy uh, the US Army or Marines and there will be some kind of like a special unit of thousand people that you know with the help of AI and people in command and control centers could operate in a very fast on a very fast pace could react to the environment and stuff like this so we definitely um, like our attitude to war also changes and the whole norm perspective changes because of course fighting now is way different than fighting like 100 years ago when they came up with the whole Geneva Convention so to speak. It's no doubt that it changes and it's just a different level and we should think about like modern military technologies especially in this in the way they change us but it comes to my point that we kind of miss this perspective because we don't even have even cultural um, media, cultural pieces that they, that, that uh, show us the war of today. Because every everything you see on the screen is mainly like this uh, blockbuster, American crash, everyone, like, you know, type of movies, or like Russian military crashes everyone in movies. But we don't see, like, the side of the, the side of the war that is the most important one. It's like what happens inside military institutions, how do they plan, what do they do, and so on and so forth. And once you miss this perspective, you completely... I mean, you could not even argue with a military guy about, like, uh, war because you don't really know what he's doing on a daily basis. And this would be my argument in the sense of, like, in 19th century, you can think about how people knew about the war. Well, of course, it was something physical, kind of, they could understand and grasp in terms of you go to war, you take a gun, and you go in, and you have orders... But there were also a lot of like novels and people who went to war. They they wrote a lot of novels, like Russian, almost all Russian famous writers. They they went to war, like like Tolstoy. You can think about, um, and that's people how, how people knew about war also from people who went there. But again, if you take like modern culture, you don't have this perspective because it's all. Probably in the American case, it will be oh, there is a, how do you call it? like the people who could not really classified information he wouldn't really write about it for example in the sense of what happens in command and control centers how people operate on this level and there are very few descriptions actually of how very advanced weapon systems operate so to speak um, and this again like this would be like a big problem because if you think about like democratic society why on earth you have like in democratic societies this military institution that are so not so transparent so there's also like a flaws in democracy itself then i mean in terms of a democratic society you can think about the pentagon i mean i agree that the u.s is a democratic society because it has a parliament it has elections it has a change of in power but i would disagree that the pentagon is a democratic institution of course it's nothing it's nothing but democratic it's very 
it's very close. They big military budget and people do whatever they want with this money and there is no transparency over what they're doing actually with this money. Uh, well, maybe Congress or like in classified hearings, they know, but ordinary people don't. And there's the whole story with the CIA, of course, and with the Snowden and with the, 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 the spying program, uh, the Five Eyes, how do you call it? Yeah, and I guess um, um, that, yes, com com comes to... It comes to the debate that the whole the campaign thing, again, it diverts your attention from this perspective to perspective of let's just try and ban killer robots and everyone who doesn't want to ban killer robots is a is not a moral morally correct person, so to speak, right? So it can it even shames you that you don't share their opinion. Um, so. I guess yes. I guess what we discussed is okay to be uncertain. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I mean, I can rant a lot. I don't know what, what what's my real point is, but um, I think that we should, with the killer robots, definitely open discussion for uh, other opinions, so to speak. Well, we can relate it to other debates. One is that of what is actually modern warfare, and there is an older debate of the 1990s, of the 2000s, of the so-called revolution in military affairs. That's already sort of a very yeah. dated this debate. But uh, there the question would be, since you basically took the command and control center, which is, I mean, those basement uh, where a pe person sits there with uh, uh, screens in front of, of him or her all day, and then... Um, I mean, is technically at the click of a button can release a missile, for instance. I mean, that's a debate where some people would say, for instance, a drone strike in Pakistan is not a war. I but mean, so, so that question is, what is I just, a war? I just want to pick up on your point about click, but it's not that easy again. Like the, what people think about the click uh, turns out not to be click. Turns out to be there was a process like the target. Like in the American case, there is at least. Transparent, transparency in the sense that they have like a five-stage process, like with the people, like you know, killing terrorists in like Middle Eastern countries. They have like this process of there is a force, like there is a planning process. Second one, there is a target development. Uh, I guess like yeah, I don't remember the whole stages of the process, um, but it's a five-stage process, and on every process you have a human involvement and you have AI involvement. For example, with target development so to speak so it's like a, a, a system kind of like a computer program that is designed from the, the, the sheer amount of like a lot of data to select those people who kind of correspond to certain like criteria that you you, you put in the algorithm um, so it, it's not again it's not just a click uh, I guess it would be a click a click it's just in, in even the click it's maybe not the click you know what I mean so it's, it's, it's way much more that's fine, but I mean, I, I, the, 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 pain, the point I wanted to make is that there are those people who basically say that um, this is an anti-terrorist operation or this is a counter-insurgency operation. They would simply say, well, the rules of war don't apply because it's not a war. So, I mean, that's maybe a, a very dumb legalistic mm -hmm. position, but I just wanted to put that out there as one way to react to that problem. The other one is, of course... Um, one and I think there we will see the real debates but also the real problems is that most of what we today understand as an AI operation and take for instance the drones is one where we talk about um, 
basically aerial warfare. I mean, we don't talk about what in military jargon is called boots on the ground. So, I mean, this is um, what, I mean, could be, for instance, um, not even a special forces operation like the one that killed Osama bin Laden. It's, it's one where you really say, I, I sent this drone um, and I have one target, which is, of course, a euphemism for a human that's mm -hmm. is supposed to be killed, and that sort of mission achieved, that's, that's over. Mm -hmm. And if we talk about warfare as... Uh, something that also means um, the control of physical territory, for instance, of um, actually, I don't know, overthrowing a government or whatever. Um, that is something that, of course, will necessitate more than um, just mm -hmm. something hovering above your head. Um, it will also include, include ground troops. It will mm -hmm. um, also mean that there is a, a clear physical presence um, on a specific territory. Mm -hmm. So uh, if we talk about that, I think that's something where um, we don't see... I mean, I, I'm sure we see some kind of AI. We also see augmented uh, or, or basically technology that supports um, human functions that's such as, you know, night vision goggles that will uh, allow you to view better things like the the, the boots and other I already talked about that mm -hmm. may allow you to walk faster stuff like that um, but I think a lot of the discussions that are also taking place around the killer robot debate is at, on the one hand that there are some awkward kind of um, robots that are presented on demonstrations and at the same time the debates are basically about um, drones or aerial warfare or or targeted killing I think yeah. um, and I think that's one segment of warfare I would say but I mean um, mm -hmm. the idea that you replace an entire army of humans with mm -hmm. robots um, I, I think is is maybe rather something that we know from science fiction videos or from yes. a dystopian fiction but it's it's less one it's less of an image that the killer robots campaign and human rights watch play with I think maybe they also want to keep that Mm -hmm. vague because of, of course that also gives them or makes it easier for them to uh, pursue that strategy because I mean the more you actually show this is what I understand by artificial intelligence or killer robots they also I don't think they, maybe they mention AI or artificial mm -hmm. intelligence um, also in, in the documents but I think their their key thing is that they somehow play with that seemingly plausible image of a killer robot yeah. Where, I mean, if you think about it twice, you really think, well, so um, what makes a robot a killer robot? And, I mean, uh, yeah. what is that, actually? Uh, and I think that's, that's strange. Let's, I guess let's make things clear. I guess officially, killer robot, in the, in the words of campaign to stop killer robot, is a robot that, uh, once activated, can select and engage targets on its own. So I guess it's official definition, what they want to ban. And of course, there is a lot of ambiguity even. But I mean, that's sorry to interrupt. But I mean, that's exactly one thing where I would say we already do have killer robots. Yes. So uh, I mean, some, it's, in, it's 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 in a way it's it's a strange well, um, it's a strange debate to have if what you allude to is actually you want to ban something that is supposed to happen in the future or is supposed to be possible in the future, but it's actually something that's happening now. Yeah, you have because, like even I mean they usually I guess like from the campaign defense side they would say those systems are only defensive, so it's like aerial 
um, uh, well, something like S S S four hundred, something that once activated in a defensive perimeter that can engage targets. But there was also like offensive weapons uh, such as uh, uh, lottering munitions that basically once activated they could uh, select targets and like for, like just uh, crush on in in targets on their own. Uh, yeah, I guess like the whole idea is to keep it as you as you rightly said, like to keep things am ambiguous. But again, when when we come back to the whole idea of um, terrorist killing, uh, like it's also, I guess the important thing, like the ease of using drones requires so much infrastructure, and that's why Americans have so many bases because you always, if you want to really, like with the ease of the click button to kill terrorists, you need to have a lot of data collection and you need to have a lot of like very expensive military infrastructure throughout the globe that engages like that really collects the data once you unless you have a data you can select and engage targets like with the drones so again like uh, it all comes down to like the real source of those killer robots that are military institutions so to speak and i i think um it's rightly a cause of concern for people and especially people in democratic states like what the hell they are doing there and why do we have like such a big military institutions? Like, do we really need to have them? Uh, I guess it should be like a democratic, open discussion in terms of do we really need to have like an American sense? Do we really need to have a program that spies on every like you know every everything you can spy on? You should spy on. It's like what Snowden showed, what they're trying to achieve there. I guess it still operates actually. Or you don't maybe need to have this program uh, again, uh, like military institutions. They're so opaque, they're so, I mean, they're so, like, you can say, uh, anti-democratic, and yet in democratic societies, people don't talk about it at all. So there is, uh, and I mean, if you, would, if you were to work in Pentagon, of course, like, your goal would be actually to do every kind of effort not to make people inquire what you're doing there, because what you're doing, I mean, I guess on a personal note, they all understand that it's not democratic. In the sense of democratic, as you understand that there is a public open data about what you're doing and there is transparency and blah, blah, blah. But they, what they're doing is not democratic. So, I mean, it, I guess it cannot be democratic. I mean, for the simple reason that in that logic, you would say um, it involves a degree of secrecy. And the degree of secrecy ensures that you have national security what is the aim of that institution so i think and uh, maybe one way to approach this would be to say that um, and there i would agree with you that there needs to be some kind of transparency maybe not transparency in the sense that hey we know everything what the pentagon does because that's again because of the degree of of secrecy or confident confi confidentiality mm -hmm. is simply impossible um but um of I think two things. One is um, what one could call an institutional culture where mm -hmm. you do have some kind of good ethical guidelines so that people somehow know, okay, this is something where I would clearly overstep um, what is legitimate or okay. The, and the other thing is, is, of course, that of accountability. And, of course, accountability is different if you don't have the proper information. So I guess... The only way then would be what you have in most democratic systems is that of oversight. And oversight then means you mm. give access to, for instance, uh, lawmakers, people in, in Congress, so they mm. have access to uh, those 
confidential papers and therefore can then somehow intervene in a way that they um, yeah, ensure that there really is legal that there is a legal process. But of course, there is um, a problem that you don't have that accountability and that um, there is a small group that yeah. basically is completely decoupled from any political control or any political decision making. Um, but I still but think the problem is less likely in democratic states than in other no, states. No, no. Uh, of course, but uh, coming to my point that the power always remains local. And that's, I guess, again, important. I guess like yeah, the, the physics is multi-layered But again, if power remains local, you should really study, uh, attempt to study what institutions are doing. But if you don't have access, uh, then you don't have information, and then like you basically don't know what they're doing, at least uh, fully. You can have an idea, but again, even from cultural perspective, we don't even have... It's not, it's not actually... I mean, it's surprising, but it's not that shocking that we don't even have uh, movies or books about what people are doing in those military institutions or like CIA. Well, we do. I mean, we also have that in Hollywood movies, but of but course... This, no, but this is like a, a, a something like, again, from actor network perspective, that would be like a, a face set of like, you know, you see on the screen like people uh, being killed on the ground, you use like advanced fighter jets... But what you don't see, or you use, like, for example, if you show the drones, how drones are killing, that's fine. I mean, but this is, like, a, 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 like one face of the coin. Another face would be, well, when drones kills, like, who else is killing, and how did they come to the decision to kill him? And, I mean, there are many, many questions that still come to the command and control center, and you don't have access to command and control center. And, I, and I mean... Neither in democracy nor in autocracy. So I think... On well, I mean, you can do interviews. I mean, I know, for instance, there are... Um, there have been social scientists who conducted interviews yeah. with, with people who are uh, drone pilots. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, there is also some kind of military oversight. So, of course, you have a chain of command and the chain of command will then also ensure that, uh, for instance, the general um, or whoever is in charge, whoever is the superior, will know what this person... Uh, does or did um, I refer to it as the click which is of course maybe not as easy but I think um, we do have two different spheres one is that of the military institution itself which at least should know what is happening there is also of course always the pro problem of um, a sort of translation and, and oversight um, is, is the the upper part of the institution or is, is sort of the top level always informed what's happening on the ground um, I think when it comes to the commands of course it does um, but if you increase the level of freedom or if you if you increase the level of I mean freedom to decide or if you for the I think that's a strange way of putting it but I mean if you if you just de increase the level of autonomy mm -hmm. and um, sort of pass it down um, to the lower echelons of the institution, yeah. then you do, of course, have less control and you might have more problems in terms of something spiraling out of control or something yeah. going wrong. Um, if you think that people who are superiors are usually the ones who are have a better sense of judgment. But, um, but again, it's also... 
Yes, I, I guess I, I just like once. Uh, uh, I remember if you if you think about how military people refute the argument of killer robots, they actually present the issue also from a morally high perspective, a morally justified perspective in the sense of if you have something like a killer robot, of course you never name them killer robots. It's also like very loaded way of uh, saying something like killer robot is saying autonomous weapon systems of course official definition of semi-autonomous weapon systems and uh, for them like the usage of killer robots um, allows to decrease the amount of killed personnel it allows to actually protect your competence so there's also like a moral perspective you should use you or even like autonomous weapon systems you should in terms of if you don't you actually it's detrimental to your own kind of needs in the military. So you almost you have a kind of a, not a right, but you have like a, like from moral perspective, like in their vision, you have to use it. Otherwise, you you. you Do you mean in in that sense? Because that would be in, in a sort of interesting or funny way to put it. Is is that actually military personnel would argue that it's uh, because you mentioned the Geneva Convention beforehand yeah. that I mean actually allowing for the use of AI or autonomous weapon systems mm -hmm. I mean would actually um, increase the likelihood of a more humane kind of warfare yes. so in, in that sense um, there are actually two opposing arguments about the use of autonomous weapon systems I mean on the one hand it's a it's a dichotomy in terms of the language so you would have to campaign calling it killer robots which in military ter terminology is called autonomous weapon systems but both terms can be used interchangeably because they mean the same thing so i mean there is this debate there the other debate is is then an interesting one um, i think that you only touched um at the margins of mm -hmm. your of your thesis but i find it an interesting one to discuss and that's um actually there is an argument out there by military people and those i would argue who are sort of closer to the effects of it or are more i would assume more knowledgeable about mm -hmm. what they're actually talking about because uh, they are, you know, dealing with them on a daily basis, and that is that actually um, autonomous weapon systems would be good for mankind in a way because they make make warfare more humane. Um, I guess there are certainly military people as well who say that it still makes may make warfare as such more humane, but it might also increase the likelihood of warfare as such. And I think maybe yes. that's that's an Yes, That's an interesting debate that I guess we, we should have with military people who would say, mm -hmm. well, if we agree that autonomous weapon systems can make or do make warfare more humane, the question is, does it then still make uh, warfare more likely, which would then in the end not be any added I guess value it's, as uh, such. Uh, the likelihood of war would be on the other dimension. It doesn't really matter... It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter what kind of type of technology you have in terms of, um, it completely political perspective. I would say I would decouple it. Uh, I mean, of course, there would be also my counter argument in terms of from actinetic perspective. Everything changes social relations, and of course, AI changes social relations. But I think in this particular military robots case, I don't think it's that important because there is. The causes of the conflict in the modern world are definitely not in killer robots, so to speak. The killer robots are more like a symptom of a very troublesome time, but not the not the other way around in terms of causal perspective. And I think, like, yeah, it's it's important because from military perspective, how do they kind of like refute the argument of campaign to stop killer robots? 
because the campaign to stop kill robots insists on the main thing is like that those kill robots they do couldn't make a discriminatory decision so they couldn't discriminate competence and non-competence and what people talk about like in in the UN for example like military personnel that goes there I mean, they, they're saying something, they take it, like the idea that humans can differentiate between combatants and non-combatants in a modern, like, warfare environment perfectly well. So they have, like, this strong case that, well, humans can differentiate, a robot cannot. But then, like, of course, like those military people, they say, hey, actually humans have a very mixed record on differentiating between combatants and non-combatants, especially in a very uh, kind of mixed city uh city like megapolis like city 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 warfare environment uh modern warfare environment so i mean if you have a killer robots the killer robots can have even uh way much better decisions because their decisions can do not connect to like emotions and stuff like that makes humans humans actually where humans would never be able to make perfect decisions but killer robots may so to speak or at least you can have certain like kind of close of to being perfect if we go like 30 years down the road. And I mean, uh, that comes to the point of, um, uh, I guess first that power is always local and like, yes, I mean, there is, uh, um, uh, like if you can have an argument that kill robots are completely uh, unethical, you can have the same argument that not, not, not acquiring kill robots is unethical. So, I mean, they're on equal footing in terms of uh, those perspectives, like both have like the right to exist. Um, Mm, yes, and I guess um, for for citizens, it's just like for human beings who are like out of debate uh, in terms of they just like I can observe the debate is happening. Again, I would just like still think it's really important to have a perspective from like a, a command and control centers just to understand uh, what does it mean to fight in the modern environment and how like what does it mean to be a soldier in the modern world, so to speak? How is it different from being soldier in twentieth century? Um, and like whether we are okay with like this type of like you know warfare in general in terms of, uh, um, but I guess the first you need to know really uh, how is it like made. I mean we're still we're still in terms of I guess people uh, modern warfare it's still it's still not that different from of course like the warfare of twentieth century so far. But the more technology develops, the more it seems uh, there will be some drastic changes. And the, this, this command and control centers, they, of course, will grow grow in their capacity to kill, so to speak. It's also true. And I, I, I think from a transparency perspective and psychological even perspective, uh, those command and control centers, they allow people who make decisions to make them more kind of like readily so to speak or to make those decisions more easily because like those people they're very they're definitely far from the where like things happening but they kind of like have a, an impression that they have like the full information and everything they have like they they are in control of the environment so to speak and that makes i guess like uh, maybe the likelihood of the conflict higher of course because once you have even you can think like from Pentagon perspective, of course, if the war on the first stages, the war between NATO and Russia, a lot of decisions would be made in those command and control centers and people in command and control centers are more willing to make risky decisions because they're not on the battle for Not like people in World War II, when you have those, yes, you have they still have like those big troops, but you are more closer to the forefront of the conflict, so to speak. And like, 
from the Pentagon perspective. Do you think that's the case? Because I mean, um, I think if you think of it of um, the military as a system of a command structure, I mean, yeah. you, you would still have the effect that those that are the least likely to be killed and um, also the ones that, but still the ones who give the orders are those that are most remote from the battlefield. I mean, um, um, so we now see, uh, I mean, of course, also um, combat deaths of, of officers, of generals, but as such, they are not as likely to be killed. And that was already the case um, in the Second World War. So yeah. I mean, there you could say the command and control center or the equivalent of the command and control center was um, also one where, you know, generals were sitting in their kind, not at barracks, but I mean somewhere way beyond um, or behind rather uh, the battle, the battlefield and the front line and were still taking decisions. So yeah, I, I mean... Guess, um, I, I just like, to this point, yeah, I guess military in it, I guess it will always be the case. It's kind of the, it's, it's the, per, it's the perfect balance, I guess, the, the good military and the good army is the perfect balance between control and autonomy because uh, you do need to have control in order to have the strategic bigger perspective on your forces. But on the, on the, on a, on a local level, you, you would never have like a perfect information what's going on on the battlefield. So you, you always need to have a certain level of autonomy on the ground. And the, the, the whole history of uh, military innovations is all about like this interplay between autonomy and control. And you can think about like military discipline in the 19th century. That was the way to, on the one hand, to kind of like optimize how people behave on the front. But once like they like understood the shortbacks of the, the, the if you have like p people that behave in only in the way that they are trained to behave, they are not like they are less likely to win certain like you know pockets on the on the battlefield because they are kind of constrained by this like mini mechanistic behavior, so to speak. So um, yes, and I, I guess. Um, um, you're right in the sense of it. It it is the phenomenon that like commanders are way far from front. In it emerged already in Second World War, but of course now it has like a certain new feature to it. It's, it's like you're very far away, and uh, you also have like this kind of like idea that your information is perfect because of the data that you have. But it can change, of course. Again, once the war starts, they're probably going to be. Like the way we see, like in the Russia-Ukraine war, it's 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 not so much, of course, about military AI and something like this. It's more about how you use those forces and how you can coordinate your forces and so on and so forth. So it's still more about this uh, classical military doctrine, a classical military perspective, than about just technology itself. I mean, technology kind of costs means nothing without like institutions and army that can support its function, so to speak. Yeah, I guess that's coming back to, I would say, more like um, accident of perspective that you always should take a context and you shouldn't decouple it from the context and then make a kind of like this normative argument that that, that, that is bad for, for, for regulatory debate. I would say so. I think with <clears throat> regard to the autonomous weapon system or drones as a maybe a, a form of autonomous weapon system, um, we already have some good evidence or empirical results that those in the command and control centers, those who do what I wrongly 
summarize as the click or clicking. Um, do do actually do actually notice that they are remote from the battlefield. Of course, there is this. Um, so I mean, they will, for instance, be told that uh, the target, i.e., the person, is alone in the car, and uh, if they hit it with a drone, nobody else will be killed. So usually, the the kind of setting is that they are pretty much aware of uh, the overall situation. But of course, there are then decisions where they still take, where a human still takes a decision, for instance, whether um, the the urgency to um, take out this person, I think another euphemism to kill that person, mm -hmm. um, is more urgent and so so-called collateral damage, that's just, I mean, killing other innocent people is is acceptable because the mm -hmm. overall military aim is, is sort of more important. So, I mean, those who operate there do are, are aware of those moral problems and they at times also lead to them then uh, deciding to quit the job so i think that's one way where um there is clearly um also an awareness that uh, even if the picture as such or the situation seems to be crystal clear i have everything i know the i don't know the level of air humidity i know the temperature i know in how many milliseconds the rocket will explode everything like that is technically known still there are some things where you see a kind of human element and of course also human assessment to the situation is it acceptable to should i wait for another two seconds that's i think where the human still comes in and is sort of in an interplay with the what i guess is then in semi-autonomous weapon systems what i read just two days ago what i found very interesting is is however something that you talked about earlier on and that is the way where um now Autonomous weapon systems um, actually obtain data or uh, maybe are not impeded by things like human emotions, like uh, fear, like a certain degree of, I don't know, maybe adrenaline that might change mm -hmm. you to behave differently. And I think as such, at, fr at the first glimpse, that sounds um, interesting and plausible and would most likely support the argument by most military people that autonomous weapon system might actually make warfare more humane. At the same time, I find it an interesting phenomenon, and this was an, a study based on peacekeeping forces mm -hmm. um, and Western peacekeeping forces from, from NATO countries, that they are now trying, knowing that one of the sort of warfare environments or conflict environments is, is uh, the urban Mm -hmm. uh, area, so I mean that we talk about urban warfare or counterinsurgency that are trying to have um, programs that are based on the findings of ethnographers and anthropologists to um, sort of control for um, what I think they called um, enemy perception and, and that is also or, or sort of a something like an othering so that they know they automatically perceive a threat for instance if they see a person with a different skin color or with, I don't know, a certain kind of f physical shape. Um, so, I mean, there are apparently already um, programs, military programs, mm -hmm. uh, training programs, where they actually try to do this, basically try to teach human humans or try to teach soldiers um, to um, try to rationalize their decisions um, in a way uh, that 
autonomous weapon systems uh, would do that as well. So in that sense, I, I find it an, just a fascinating coincidence that, mm. I mean, even if we have that debate about killer robots or autonomous weapon systems, semi-autonomous weapon systems, we also do already have um, yet other advances in military training that responds not only to a new conflict environment, that is the urban areas, but also to one where um, it is seen as problematic that, I mean, soldiers could be as trigger-happy as they used to be. So, I mean, it's, it's really about assessing the, the conflict situations correctly. And I think that might be a question for even another podcast, and that is, um, is it actually something that is possible? I mean, is there something like a correct or right way to assess a conflict situation? Because, I mean, I, I think that's, that, that includes so many ifs that it's, it's really hard to say. Because, I mean, of course, it all, it all boils down to what you can also read in, in classic literature. It's, it's about that dilemma of every soldier that is being shot at or could be shot at that you think, well, is it me or is it the person that is currently aiming at me that will die. So, I mean, of course, that also, um, there is this this element to any armed conflict, to any warfare, of course, and that is your threat of being killed mm -hmm. will, of course, automatically increase the likelihood that you shoot or that you um, shoot yes. first. Uh, so I think in that sense, I mean, um, I would be curious to learn more about those programs because I just, you know, read it was a eight-page article or section on of that article on on that mm -hmm. on that program. I would really be interested in learning more about that, how they do that on the ground, because I, I think it can only do that to a certain extent. Because I mean, as such, if you see a person say with a gun, um, it you will you will you will still. I mean, it, it apparently the program was a lot about intentions and cultural mm -hmm. awareness that the way how certain people speak, the way how yeah. certain people behave, walk in the streets, mm -hmm. I mean, use their hands that this might somehow show a certain intent of be either being hostile or being friendly yeah. and this could be misinterpreted and therefore people could shoot whereas mm -hmm. the, in fact that people just wanted to say hi, great to see you, um, exaggerating. Yes. <laughs> But I mean, um, still I think it's, it's an interesting phenomenon that this is mm -hmm. also now being discussed and even introduced mm -hmm. in training programs, but I yeah. uh, talked a lot, sorry. So, um, I guess, yes, as you mentioned, like a training program and what I thought about is uh, how complex the topic is in general and regulation of killer robots, autonomous weapon systems or semi-autonomous weapon systems is not a easy task. And I think it's very important to have a kind of open mind to different perspectives, to different details of the issue, legal perspective, technical perspective, what have you. And I guess like the whole campaign to stop killer robots is almost like aimed at uh, simplifying the issue to the point where like one group of people kind of tries to, pre tries to present that they know the answer to the issue and it's the only right answer to the issue. And I guess that that's my argument that this is actually the problem because the problem is way much more complicated and it requires um, scrutiny, it requires uh, kind of like innovative thinking 
but this innovative thinking is kind of like hampered by such things as campaign to stop killer robots because it tries to really kind of like set in stone what we have to do and everything else is kind of like unmorally immorally incorrect and just the campaign to stop killer robots knows how to do things so to speak well i guess uh, as you rightly that's one of the biggest strengths yeah. of your papers of course that you um, rightly point out that two different logics apply or two different understandings apply and they are located in two different kind of settings or you could say in two different networks one is that of the campaign to stop killer robots and i think the strongest criticism you can make and that the that's the one you made is of course that um those who actually should be the most knowledgeable and that is the military um they are either not heard or um the network is not really taking into account how the military thinks about the problem so if you um and that's something you only touch uh sort of on the margins not a criticism regarding your your thesis mm-hmm. but that's just because it's such a broad topic yeah. as be- because that's something we discussed now is that of course an institution like the pentagon has an enormous budget has a lot of people um and therefore i think it would make sense for human rights scholars for activists to know what is actually happening now they cannot know everything because of course mm-hmm. uh, some um things are taking place behind closed doors there is a degree of confidentiality of um also secrecy involved uh, information is classified but still there seems to be even at a superficial level or if you deal with autonomous weapon systems for one day and read some of the literature you will notice that there are such incredible discrepancies between how human rights watch and the campaign presents killer robots and what the military thinks it is doing what it could do what it should do what it shouldn't do that um yeah there is there is an incredible mismatch so that uh, there seems to me i know this uh, sounds cynical but i'm happy to make that cynical argument that there seems to be rather an interested uh, rather an interest in you know getting media attention and also getting funds to have that campaign then to really take care or really take seriously what is at stake there so um as such i think the only thing that this campaign can achieve if it is successful is doing the same thing that other campaigns did because the ICBL the so-called international uh, campaign to ban landmines um was making the same argument is that they come up with it with that idea hey there is now um a normative framework that governs the non-use of so-called or control of so-called killer robots and it basically means that there is a taboo that if you once read a newspaper article or see um news coverage of one of those machines or mm. devices being used that you know you can do finger pointing and say hey did you see they are using those kind of killer robots even if uh, we have that treaty that mm. uh, bans that and of course leaving aside that the states that will most likely use those devices are those that wouldn't sign yes. the um the treaty in the first place but i mean that's something we already discussed yes. so i think yes. the 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 point and i would really make is that um there is 
a level of self-interest or also for, I mean, a, a way of trying to present a problem in a rather simplistic way that, I mean, actually doesn't solve it, even if we have the treaty, mm -hmm. and one also that doesn't take those actors or the actor the most seriously that you should talk to, and that's the military. And I mean, even if they may not share all the information, I think, for instance, the fact that you have social scientists who have been able to conduct interviews with drone operators shows you that there is at least a, a kind of way to tease out what kind of decisions they have to take, what kind of um, elements one should take into consideration when one comes up with a draft treaty. And I mean, that's not something that has been reflected by the campaign. Yeah. So I think that's clearly um, also a good example of why actor network theory, now I'm doing the sales pitch for you, actor network theory, mm -hmm. um, is of course um, important because it really shows you that there are um, networks or group of groups of people mm -hmm. who um, work according to a certain logic and it's one also that then is is in a way self-sustaining so I think um, the interesting mm -hmm. thing is also that it's self-sustaining or is actually then sort of hopping from one topic to the other but a, mm -hmm. but some basic patterns remain the same I yes. mean some basic patterns like the very same actors the very same constellation of certain NGOs or groups uh, the, the, the same way of trying to raise media attention this, the same way to um, try to get the support of certain governments uh, also the kind of institution that they focus on which is some kind of UN system uh, so I think in that sense it's uh, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting um, and would also mean that it's, it makes sense not to study the um, killer robots campaign in isolation, but also to study it in the context or as a historical series of uh, similar networks um, yeah. or or network networks of sub networks of um, yeah, th things that that have a a similar logic. I mean, of, of course, that's one of the core basic arguments that also Latour does in, in his first things when he starts from the ideas of labs, yes. uh, laboratories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, there you can also say that there are certain patterns that are identical. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you have a, a lab in California or whether you have one in Norway or whether you have one in, I don't know, mm -hmm. Italy or in Russia where things are being done in the same way, same way, but of course then you also have things that are not really scrutinized, yeah. uh, only mm -hmm. starting with Latour, where mm -hmm. you say, hey, there are also differences, and there are also things that might make a difference when it comes mm -hmm. to the outcome and mm -hmm. to the assessment of it. Which is basically how people do things, and also how people do things that then appear to be static and so well... Uh, or kind of on the surface, um, so well uh, scientific, uh, but beneath those scientific kind of uh, facade, there is, of course, there is a lot of work has been done, so to speak. Or that you don't need to scrutinize it. I mean, yes, things, things that you take for granted, things yes, yes. also in writing, if you talk or write about your own academic research, that you think either think, hey, it's something that everyone knows anyway, it's uh, something that anyone does anyway, so why should I actually 
put that yes. on paper that I do it because I mean I mm -hmm. I pretend as if there was some kind of um, you know experimental setup that is identical and uh, you don't scrutinize or you don't point out or or show where you have even subtle differences that might make a difference to the entire outcome yeah and, and of course that's one of the I think main for me key contributions of of his theory knowing that you have read way more Brunler to than I did <laughs> yes. Uh, well, and of course, uh, he's not some. Uh, you can read him in many different ways depending on your own background. It's not as clear cut. Uh, he's almost like a fluid, I guess, and he considers him his also ideas are very fluid that he develops from one book to another. But for me, of course, especially Latour resonates and actor network theory resonates in the sense of how we can overcome differences and also international relations. As you notice, there's like this uh, network dynamic that people really tend to like in inside the network. People tend to think that their that their view is that like that that their view is the only right view and is universal and you, what have you. You can say like what we discussed before, uh, making things international with figuration. The same goes about making things uh, lawful with figuration. What have you like? It's like the idea that inside the network you always perceive things as what you're doing is the only right way to do. But once you encounter people from a different network, uh, you kind of become almost like a hostile to them, to those ideas and to those people. And um, uh, of course, the actor network theory resonates, uh, not in a sense like this kind of like very maybe stupid way to see or like relativity in social sciences that there is no truth in at all like to the world like i guess like what alexander dugin would say i guess he his take on actual relativity and post uh, structure like just post uh postmodern society is like there is no truth at all but it's not about that it's i like guess the ultra perverted uh no, I, I guess i guess I have, of, of, of relativism but yeah but the, the whole idea that there is uh truth to relation in the sense of truth once you understand and take uh, others opinion seriously you see the truth that they kind of give to this opinion and why do they give and how do they construct the truth and how do they like then kind of like the network grows and how do they uh, see their their opinion as the only rightful but then of course there should be some i guess latour writes in his like recent books especially about climate change this idea of diplomacy as a way of discovering uh, others opinions so to speak or others position and why do people think the way they think, so to speak? And this, of course, really, really resonates with me in a contemporary crisis, where people should really take Russian opinion seriously, not because it's like for some... Um, um, just because if you want to live with someone, like in one community, you should really understand that uh, uh, and, and try to figure out why people think this way and not the other way, and try to really kind of make an effort to get to know those people almost again this is all about diplomacy in the sense of it's about uh, uh, knowing uh, about the other so to speak because like there is a you inside your network and the other it's like from different cultural perspective you should really know about their position and take this position seriously because you understand that you know they have their own truth of course but you have their own truth and then out of this can have some sort of like agreement or negotiation where you try to really discuss 
on things that you can uh, agree, but at least you can have an attempt to settle your disagreement, so to speak. And I think like down, like maybe like action network theory is really something you need right now in the sense of uh, trying to understand that of course there are disagreements and rightfully so between like, those networks and between groups of people, but there is a way to settle those disagreements only by accepting the other or accepting that other opinion has a right to exist, so to speak, and other culture has a right to exist, so to speak. And this is, of course, what West lacks, because West is all about like imposing its kind of imperial projection of what things, uh, what, what, what imperial projection of the, the right things, and everything that doesn't fit this kind of narrative is wrong, or it doesn't have right to exist. And of course, this is the why we experience like the, the conflict now is because there is like certainly Western almost almost like a layer of self-defense in terms of uh, we don't accept other opinion and we don't accept the other as as a cultural phenomenon. So we we only do things as the way we do, and we are the only like the right party, and everyone else is wrong, so to speak. That's uh, and this is the very serious cause of concern, I would say. You know that we disagree on that topic in numerous ways. Um, I think the mm-hmm. only thing that I would concede or try to make sense of it is um, that there may be a, a kind of Western... There is certainly some kind of Western perception of the situation, but I think what I would see differently is that mm-hmm. there um, there certainly is also a critical amount of people in what you call the West that mm-hmm. also at least tries or tried to take, um, in your case, the Russian uh, position into consideration, mm-hmm. but um, now comes to the assessment that they uh, simply cannot be reconciled. That's something that I pretty much agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's then the question is, uh, where do we go from here? I mean, I, of course, there is... If I mean, I, we would have to disentangle the West as such because that's already a, a problematic uh, um, concept. But I mean, we have a Western perception of the situation and the question is then, um, is that... Is the is the sort of Western strategy or is the Western response um, taking into consideration uh, Russian demands or, or or the Russian perspective? Or, or just, or did just, they did they do it now? I mean, now of course there there is just, an escalation dynamic. The one thing is is um, in the end there must be some kind of 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 conflict resolution. So I mean, mm-hmm. maybe to try to end that on an analytic note, I think the 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 question would be. From again coming back to actor network theory and the Russia-Ukraine war is um, there will be <clears throat> an end of the conflict one day, <clears throat> um, hopefully sooner than later. But um, um. but there any conflict somehow needs to uh, require some kind of conflict resolution, and um, of course you can see from from past wars that I mean. The more just the outcome is considered by both sides, the most likely it is that you have a stable peace. And I mean, um, yeah. but, but what again, that means for each society, what that means for uh, for all politicians, is is something that um, will have to be discussed, I guess. 
Yes, but uh, uh, I would I would rather disagree in the sense that uh, uh, the West simply um, cannot really agree to any other opinion but their own, and this is I guess the problematic because the problem doesn't stop with Russia. It goes to like the West, uh, the relationship between the West and Middle East. It goes to the relationship between the West and China. And all those civilizations, you can say people, they have different opinions on different issues. And the only way to start really kind of like, you can almost say in, in a realist perspective, accommodate those ideas is like to be open-minded yourself. Again, there is no, not a coincidence, I guess, that the more and more people in the West and even liberal people, they tend to silence other opinions. I mean, they just simply don't want to hear those opinions that are not kind of like related to their own opinion. Because the West has this like kind of like moral superior ground to do it and to think that we are still kind of adhere to free speech, but it's 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 almost paradoxical because if you if you adhere to free speech, shouldn't you really talk to other people with different opinions, so to speak? But I mean, again, the dynamic in the West that you certainly have just like a hegemonic opinion and you silence everything else and you have like this kind of like. Um, so you still have the space for the debate, but the space for the debate is almost like uh, in certain. You put the, the debate in the brackets, and you bracket everything out of this debate. So I don't know whether it makes sense, but and I guess like the the whole. The I mean, there is a there is a point that you have when it comes to domestic the domestic audiences in in the West or so domestic debates, where I think you see that you see. No matter where you look at, you see increased polarization, and you also see um, also more heated and antagonistic debates, and also what some people then define as that sort of the the correct way of, you know, considering a or judging a certain situation. But I think um, there is also a kind of schizophrenia, or even um, uh, I don't know, some kind of. Uh, Ro simply wrong perception now um, that um, this sort of what you refer to basically as an imperialist project I mean is at least when it comes to a military point of view is is in a way a thing of the past because I mean um, if you look at uh, intervention at interventions from western uh, countries I mean they have now come too close there is now not necessarily agreement, but there is a critical amount of scholars who also say that the idea that you democratize countries like Iraq or Afghanistan, um, that there the record is extremely poor, to say the least. So, I mean, there has been actually a pullback from, by most Western states, that the way that they um, actually want to engage militarily in uh, other countries has actually significantly decreased. I mean, there was a pullout from Afghanistan. Troop numbers have already been reduced uh, in Iraq since ages. <clears throat> I mean, the entire Libya operation in 2011 was never one where the idea was to, to put um, boots on the ground um, in the first place. So, I mean, as such, one could say that countries like Russia and China seem to have just gotten the Western perspective wrong so I mean of course there is power competition there is there is also competition when it comes to um, technological supremacy and, and aspects like that but that the idea that I mean the West is about to you know conquer every 
um, place that is available. I think that's that's also a kind of uh, hysteria that um, is then at times used for political purposes in in countries that don't belong to what we now here refer to for the sake of of easiness as the West. Yeah, uh, of course. But I, I would say you can have a, a very kind of like meta sophisticated perspective. What I try to show in with network theory that you can have an idea that they're both right. And there is, and like the whole idea that they're both right according to their, their own, own logic. logic. But then you, and then the question: How do you go from then? And like coming just to the thesis, of course, uh, you should have, as you said, like something like the, the campaign to stop killer robots can have an, a, a kind of like the level of self-reflexivity to incorporate this feedback from military personnel and from military, the Pentagon, in order to successfully. Um, regulate those weapons, and the same goes for, of course, for the Pentagon that it can have um, incorporate those concerns and show that they could, you know, do they they could incorporate those concerns from the campaign to stop killer robots and make kind of like the military more humane, so to speak, or like whatever concerns like this global society has. Uh, and this is again, and it requires understanding, and it's not the coincidence that you have the same kind of like. Uh, network like or, or just a like, group think perspective to kind of like take your position seriously and others not seriously and and moreover to make the utmost effort to silence the other perspective and to kind of ridicule it like just say like this perspective is wrong actually and I am the only one who knows it and I mean uh, I guess it's it's it, it will never disappear because it, it's almost it feels like how people like actually will leave we leave like we are born into society like with that definitely has differentiation between you and the other and there is n- never going to change but then you you need to, if if you take this perspective seriously then the question is how you go around this how you go around the fact that there can be that you can be right and you can be right or like the russia can be like well, russia can be right the us can be right and then how you go around this and what kind of mechanisms and institutions you need to create to have a normal kind of like almost the algorithm of, of communication. So you see like uh, the, the, you take like other concerns seriously, so to speak. I guess that's that's the point. Um, what makes like actor network perspective interesting for me that it allows like this from meta perspective to almost like, again, if you think about like instruments, like to, to think of instrumentally how you can uh, attempt to reconcile it. I guess that's, that's the, the topic, maybe for the next episode. But something like I wanted to I reconciliation and conflict resolution. Well, yes, we can have a look at that. Yes, exactly. So, thank you very much. It was a pleasure, uh, and I can see you on the next episode. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. <laughs>